This paper looks at patient engagement in health research as a type of epoche or suspending of the presuppositions of positive science, and as a possible entry into the phenomenological reduction to the life world, the pre-given world of pre-theoretical experience. We argue that when patients or community researchers, which is our preferred term in this paper, when they are involved, health research gets transformed from its naturalistic form through the meaning and significance the researchers has for those researchers. That is the way they view it in terms of their life worlds, their lived experience. This in turn has consequences for the way in which academic researchers understand the significance of their research endeavors and how such endeavors fit into the researchers' own life worlds. We proceed as follows. First, we give a brief overview of patient engagement in research. We then briefly discuss the phenomenological notions of epoche, reduction, and life world. Next, we discuss the method we use to approach this phenomenon, after which we turn to case studies of health research involving community researchers that exemplify the transformative effect of this engagement. Finally, we conclude by arguing that a phenomenological understanding of patient engagement in research shows its impact on and importance for the meaning of research, an aspect that is rarely discussed in the patient engagement literature. Patient engagement in research is an approach to health research in which patients are involved as researchers rather than simply as subjects of research. With roots in community-based participatory research, or participatory action research, and in the patient activism that arose as a result of the inadequacies of government responses to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, patient engagement has become a mainstream expectation on the part of health research funders in a number of countries, such as the United Kingdom, the United States, and Canada. What qualifies as patient engagement varies, but there is general agreement that patient refers not just to clinical patients, but also to caregivers, family and other caregivers, and to patient organizations, and that engagement has to be meaningful. That is, it must go beyond simply informing patients about the research, or even consulting them on certain aspects of it. The expectation is that patients will participate in the research project from an early stage, and ideally across most, if not all, phases, i.e. preparation, execution, knowledge translation, and governance. Whilst there is widespread agreement that patient engagement is essential for health research, there is less evidence of its impact on research outcomes, partly for methodological reasons. For this reason, studies of patient engagement in research typically look at evaluations of engagement from the perspective of the academic researchers, or patients, or both, that are conducted either by the academic researchers themselves, by an evaluation organization, or by funders. Some studies have looked at the impact by categorizing researchers' motivations for patient engagement, such as for moral, instrumental, or process reasons. From these perspectives, patient engagement does have an impact on research, and in particular on researchers themselves, but predominantly in terms of setting priorities and on communication and interaction with patient partners. Less common are studies that look at how patient engagement transforms the significance of research. Husserl's notion of the natural attitude is characterized by what he calls the general thesis presented in Ideas 1, namely that the world, quote, has its being out there, end quote. 
that, quote, I find it to be out there and take it as something that exists out there, end quote. Although a ubiquitous attitude, because, because its presuppositions are tacit or latent, it is not evident from within the natural attitude itself. That is, this attitude is not aware of its own implicit prejudice. As Dermot Moran says, quote, As the mature Husserl often insists, the natural attitude is an attitude that is, in its very naivete, unknown to itself. End quote. To make this attitude patent, then, and thus enable a form of inquiry that can get at the meaningfulness of experience, it needs to be suspended or bracketed in the epoche the first step in the phenomenological method, which puts out of play the presuppositions of existing or real being that we would otherwise try to use in accounting for the conditions of experience. However, the epoche doesn't involve any denial or dismissal of natural experience. That is, it is not a hiving off or jettisoning of domains of experience. Rather, everything is accepted as experience, only now that experience is understood or approached as imminent consciousness. Thus, nothing is lost in the epoche, but our attitude to experience changes. Furthermore, and important for our inquiry here, because the positive sciences are also based on or found, founded in the natural attitude, the presuppositions that they involve, which we could generally call positivism, are also put out of play, as Moran, Moran also points out. As with the epoche, the reduction should not be taken as a disavowal of any experiential content. Rather than a contraction or diminution of the scope of experience, the reduction is perhaps best understood as re-education, that is, as a leading back to the basis of experience. The form of reduction that interests us here, the life-world reduction, seeks to return the sciences, or we could say the scientific attitude, to their basis in the life-world, i.e. to show how they are founded in pre-scientific and perhaps pre-theoretical intersubjective life-world experience. Husserl characterizes the life world in the crisis as, quote, always already there, existing in advance for us, the ground of all praxis, whether theoretical or extra-theoretical. One thing we need to keep in mind is that phenomenology is performative. The epoche and the reduction are not theoretical arguments, but actually need to be enacted to grasp their import and how they transform attitudes, whether natural or naturalistic. So in developing our phenomenological interpretation of patient engagement, then, we are also mindful of the point Don Ide makes that, quote, phenomenology in the first instance is like an investigative science, an essential component of which is experiment, end quote. Our experiments took the form of close phenomenological description by two academic researchers of events in their research projects that exemplified essential characteristics of patient engagement. These descriptions were drafted, edited, re-examined, and reiterated through bi-weekly collaborative discussions over a period of three months. We decided upon this approach as a productive way to combine experience in phenomenological analysis with experience in patient engagement and research. In our research project, we have also sought to enact or relive the epoche in the memory work of writing these phenomenological descriptions of events. 
Arguably, then, there is a double sense of epoche at work in the production of these descriptions, since, on the one hand, the transformations at play functioned in a way similar to the bracketing of presuppositions that constitute the epoche. On the other hand, the process of producing these phenomenological descriptions itself involved an application of the epoche, so as to forestall the professional research tendency to provide explanations. The performance of the reduction i.e. leading back to the life world, on the other hand, is what we attempt to do in this paper itself. Next, we turn to the case studies of health research involving patient partners or community researchers to show the transformative effect of this engagement on the meaning of the research. In this section, we provide the phenomenological descriptions of the way these research studies unfolded in the engagement, and then explicate how this inflected or transformed our own understanding of the research we were doing. Case 1. Community engagement during an early study phase brainstorming session. For my doctoral research, I am studying chronic disease self-management experiences among socioeconomically marginalized people who use drugs. My study team has a principal knowledge user and community advisory committee, all of whom know each other and have lived experience of drug use and marginalization. Our first meeting occurred in June 2019. The meeting took place at my office building in a small conference room. The community researchers interacted quickly without difficulty. They freely joked around or teased each other and also shared sensitive life details and asked each other personal questions. The atmosphere felt more relaxed compared to other research meetings I had attended. Still, it felt a bit unnatural for me to participate in these conversations, so I felt an urge to interrupt to get the meeting going. Yet instead, I focused on adjusting my body language to signal I was ready to start and waited for the conversation to wane. To begin the meeting, I described the core elements of the study, such as the relevant content knowledge, potential methods, and eligibility criteria. To elicit discussion, I observed people's faces after each point I made to assess for confusion, then repeatedly asked if anyone had questions. As I spoke, the community researchers appeared to ponder the information. A principal knowledge user asked some easy questions to get the ball rolling, though the other community researchers also did not hesitate to ask for clarification. The more research-experienced or talkative individuals spoke up first about how the material related to their own personal experiences and those of other community members they knew, and the remaining individuals followed up to share their thoughts as well. Community researchers' ideas appeared to build on what each other were saying, which seemed to further everyone's understanding of the topic. As the meeting continued, the discussion shifted from me talking a lot at the beginning to mainly the community researchers talking by the end. Once I noticed the community researchers become increasingly passionate about the topic, I let them take the lead in directing the remaining discussion. It appeared they also had certain light bulb moments. I took notes of their main ideas, but focused mostly on listening and still participating in the conversation as necessary. While listening to the community researchers, I sometimes found myself struggling to understand what they were saying and its implications. They spoke about life circumstances that were different from mine. Furthermore, they often spoke in different ways, slang words, phrasing, etc., from what I was used to in research meetings with only academic team members. So this was sometimes confusing and I attempted to identify what they meant to ensure I was not missing important information. I recall trying hard to actually remember to clarify these things rather than making assumptions about meanings and made a point of jotting down brief notes to remind me to ask for further explanation later. At times it seemed that more casual conversation crept into our brainstorming, but I increasingly noticed that it was difficult to identify which parts of the discussion were relevant or not. Again, I felt some urges to interrupt but resisted. I let these conversations proceed until I felt fairly certain they were not related to the work, and then still waited until a natural point to get people back on track unless the community researchers did that themselves. 
from but from these these discussions, I came to realize that some to realize that sometimes when it seemed like we were off track, good ideas were actually emerging. I also observed how this kind of discussion seemed to make everyone more comfortable and to be helpful in getting the more quiet or new to research people to speak their minds. Overall, I recall attempting to be as flexible as possible in the community engagement process, and it seemed this developed very much organically and was adapted throughout the meeting. This involved slowing down the usual brainstorming process and was thus more time consuming than traditional research. While at first it felt a bit unproductive and disorganized to jump back and forth across conversation topics and consider ideas that seemed off topic, we ultimately brought all the information together and I ended up being surprised by some key ideas developed through the discussion, as well as with how easy it was for the team to agree on the most important ideas. By the end of the meeting, we had obtained consensus on the most suitable study design details for exploring the research question with the intended community. The quantitative research project examined differences in the use of maternity care services between women living with and without HIV. The team consists of 14 members, half of whom are women with lived experience, the other half academic researchers and healthcare providers. At our previous meeting, we had collaboratively planned the study and determined the outcome measures. I scheduled a team meeting to share the study's results with all team members simultaneously and to collaboratively interpret the findings. I prepared the meeting activities so as to have a minimal influence on perceptions of the findings while ensuring that everybody had an equal chance of understanding the data tables. Finding out which results stood out to the community researchers and how they relate to their individual life experiences or those of their peers was an integral aspect of the study. The academic researcher's role was to situate the findings within the existing literature and within their life experience as healthcare providers. A week prior to the meeting, I distributed the data tables to all team members, but did not provide any interpretation besides explaining that they did not have to prepare for the meeting and that we will review them thoroughly as a team. For the meeting, I had created a presentation which was posted on a big screen that included the data table split into small sections on individual slides. I did not expect community researchers to be able to read the data tables without guidance. I was uncertain how comfortable all team members would be at reading and interpreting data tables, specifically tables that summarize the data from logistic regression models. The process of interpreting quantitative data in this sort of context was new to me. Therefore, I had intentionally prepared the presentation to give everyone an equal opportunity to read, understand and interpret the numbers presented. I put all the numbers in each table into words and read through the data tables as though reading a very detailed results section for a quantitative study. I first outlined what the individual columns represented and then went line by line putting the data into words without adding any meaning to them. It was a much more extensive description than I would usually provide for a quantitative results section of a manuscript. But the process was comparable, which made it somewhat effortless. Regardless, it felt very time consuming and tedious to read out even those lines that I considered not relevant for the overall analysis and interpretation. I had to be conscious to not skip anything, to not go too fast, and to continue with the process that I had created to make the results well understood for everybody present. I also noticed that most academic team members were not paying close attention to my words or slides after a short while, but they began to examine the tables on their own. I found this helpful because it raised my awareness of looking for clues in the body language of the community researchers to remain on task and to ensure that I used clear language. 
I also noticed small aspects in the data during the reading process that I had deemed not important earlier without this line-by-line -line spoken out reading process. I read, I read data tables meticulously after they have been compiled, checking for errors and inconsistencies, as well as looking for trends and other findings. But I noticed that speaking out loud every single line after having already worked through them on my own previously, emphasized additional small variations in the data that might not have come to light without the slowed down process. Team members were allowed and encouraged to ask questions regarding clarity throughout the data presentation. But I stopped any kind of interpretation, reminding people that we will do this step as a team afterwards. Instead, members were encouraged to use sticky notes to write down initial thoughts and ideas, which they later placed onto large poster boards within the meeting room, and which were used to guide the discussions on main findings and interpretations. People were given additional time for their task after we completed each data table and were reminded to focus on what they have learned from the data presentation and what they perceived as relevant to the lives of women living with HIV. The sticky notes were well used by all team members and I noticed that they seemed to give every member the opportunity to speak at least once during each discussion. I had expected people would pick up on some of the most obvious results, such as those that are prominent in different journal articles. But the community researchers focused at times on quite different topics. For example, everybody agreed that mental health was an important factor in the study, considering that people living with HIV are more likely to have mental health comorbidities than other people. And so the team had previously agreed to include it as a covariate into the statistical models. However, only the community researchers who had themselves experienced the same healthcare system as the women whose data we were interpreting made the connection that mental health might also play a role in how women gave birth. All of them included the term in some form on a sticky note and it led to lengthy discussions among them. While I at first experienced this discussion as derailing what I thought of as the task at hand, the community researchers kept bringing the discussion back to their actual experiences, to how they were treated and how they felt in the process. As mentioned in the introduction, patient engagement in research has often been evaluated in terms of moral, instrumental and process motivations, but not so much in terms of how it transforms research. Our analysis of particular patient engagement experiences suggested that it has an epoche-like effect involving a suspension or bracketing of presuppositions about what qualifies as research and its significance. And while working through our phenomenological analyses, we found that the process involved and reflected a sort of reduction to the life world. By bringing attention to focus on how engagement had transformed the research in terms of its life world significance. We suggest then that our analyses support the idea that the meaning of scientific research, in this case health research, cannot be determined solely by science itself, i.e. positivistically. However, this presupposition is often imported into accounts of such research. Patient engagement occasions the evoque of that presupposition and thus facilitates life world reduction. In engaging people who are not part of our little scientific world, the meaning of the research process changed, and the re reduction process we engaged in helped us elucidate how this meaning could be grounded in the shared life world. In particular, 
we notice two common but related themes in our investigations, temporal dimensions and intrasubjective language. First, the temporal duration involved in engaging with community researchers, as opposed to solely with other academic researchers, created a space in which our academic researchers were distanced from the naturalistic attitude and were led to reflect on the experience they were having as an atypical research experience. Second, the awareness of the difference or distance between scientific language and the language of the life world also occasioned a reconsideration of presuppositions and an awareness of the situatedness of the research. Having to explicate through painstaking descriptive detail what the experience of engaging in PER was like brought to light many adjustments I made to the usual research process which I had not reflected on previously and some of which I did not even practice consciously. So perhaps this unnatural process of engaging in phenomenology made the implicit explicit, as I expect I would have found it more difficult to articulate some of our PER practices, and thus their meaning, without the focused, collaborative, and iterative process we use to isolate only the descriptive elements of the experience. Regarding the role of language and how I encountered community researchers using jargon during the research meeting that I did not fully understand, I believe this is mainly reflective of the marginalized population and their very different life world. My reaction to this seems similar to my reaction to several other examples of suspending my research presuppositions, which I became aware of through this process. That is, more generally, my experience of grappling with PER appears to mainly involve the need to listen closely, shown across each paragraph of my case study, and how that required being more patient and flexible than in traditional research. For example, allowing the community researchers to lead the discussion and not interrupting them too quickly when the conversation seemed off track. Overall, this involved a fundamental slowing down of the research process. The exercise in phenomenological engagement demonstrates how truly transformational the PER process can be and highlights the utility of this activity for gaining a better understanding of the meaning and impact of PER. Regarding my engagement with community researchers to interpret quantitative data, I envisioned PER as an epoche, as it not only allowed me, but even forced me to reflect on my presuppositions regarding the analysis of quantitative data. The data tables were prepared in a standard scientific format, and I would have distributed the same tables for an analysis meeting without community researchers present. But I would have expected team members to review them ahead of time and would have provided only a brief review prior to the discussion. I had to rethink the structure of the meeting and the team discussion knowing that a number of team members might not be able to read these tables on their own. This thoughtful and slower planning of the meeting increased my awareness of how this aspect of the research process is typically practiced. While the lengthy reading out loud of the data tables further seemed tedious at times, but it was necessary to provide all team members with the same opportunity to read, understand and interpret the actual data. The intense slowing down of the review of research results brought to light even small nuances in the data that might have been overlooked in a usual data review process. The presupposition became a question, how quantitative results are presented and discussed to which I had to find a possible answer. I decided to slow down the temporal relation of the research process, which enabled all team members to equally and meaningfully contribute to the discussion. My main reason for, for using PEER is that research findings cannot be properly interpreted without the perspectives of those who are experiences, experiencing the research topic in the life world. However, 
phenomenologically anal analyzing one aspect of engaging with community academics during research illustrated that reviewing known methodological processes and slowing temporal relations of the research can be beneficial to any research, regardless of the use of pair. To conclude then, the effect of the temporal and linguistic dimensions of patient engagement in research that our analyses brought to light are an example of how a phenomenological engagement can make the impact and importance of this approach to research evident in ways that the analyses more often found in health research cannot. These phenomenological analyses also show how, for academic researchers, engaging with patients or community researchers can involve as Leonard Lawler puts it, quote, experiencing the conditions of experience, end quote, of their research endeavors. Using such an approach could thus allow health researchers to see the significance of their research processes more completely and to engage patients in a deeper and more explicitly transformational way.